from app.com, it's time to talk college hoops in the Garden State. Welcome to Jersey Jump Shot. That's right, it's time for Jersey Jump Shot. Ryan Ross here with Jerry Carino and Steve Edelson. Back for another week of college hoops in the Garden State. We have a fun episode for you this week. We'll go through some of the results of our New Jersey teams. Look at the week ahead. We also have another first for the podcast. One week after we had our first head coach on the show, we have our first commissioner on the show. Rich Enser from the MAC joins us. Talk college hoops, college sports in general with us. A great conversation he had with Jerry and Steve. So stay tuned for that. But before we get there, let's start this week with the Seton Hall Pirates, Jerry. They have a nice win over Butler in the week ahead. They are at St. John's and had and they have DePaul home on Sunday. But Seton Hall continuing to stockpile wins, which is what they need to do. Yeah. So what you're seeing now is Seton Hall is starting to hit stride and really show you the image of what they can be under Shaheen Holloway, right? This defense is just off the charts good uh, against lesser opponents, and it travels on the road. They completely shut down Butler. I know Butler's not very good, but to hold a Big East team to 49 points on the road, this is now the first time in the Big East era the Hall has held five teams under 50 points on a season. I mean, that's just incredible uh, achievement for on that half of the floor, led by Casey Nadefa, who I think is we still got you know a, a halfway of the Big East schedule to play. I think at this point should be considered for the Big East Defensive Player of the Year. He's that good. He sets that kind of tone, uh, and the Hall's in pretty good shape. You know they're they're uh, six and five and in fifth place in the league. They have some work to do. The St. John's game is huge this week. They're playing in Carneseca, which they haven't played in that little arena in Queens since with fans there since 2015. That was like a lifetime ago. It's a much harder place to play, I think, than Madison Square Garden, which has more of a neutral venue venue feel. And uh, if Seton Hall can win, can win at St. John's, who they beat pretty handily at home, but have had problems with on the road in the past. If they can win at St. John's, they get the Paul at home. That's a game they should win. They get to eight and five in the league. They're only like three, maybe four wins away from making the NCAA tournament. So that's reasonably in the discussion, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was looking this morning, you know, a net of 57. So that is, you know, steadily improving. Doable. It's doable. Yeah. Now, now, now you're in the ballpark, right? As you said, Jer, now, you know, now you can see a path to the finish line, a legitimate path to the finish line, get to eight and five in the league, you know, and, and again, Seton Hall is doing what they have to do. You know, are they at the level of the Creightons and the Marquettes yet? No, but they're better than a lot of teams in, in the Big East and they're taking care of those teams. And that's exactly what they have to do right now. And Seen Holloway has figured out, I think he's really got a handle on his, his rotation now. He's got a firm starting five who are gelling really well together. Uh, he's got, you know, his, his four subs who come off the bench. Now, Dre Davis, who's been the good six man, sprained an ankle. Uh, I, I don't I, He looked like he, it was a pretty bad sprain. Who knows? But will he play this week? You know, sprained ankle, you figure he needs at least a week probably. But, you know, St. John's is banged up too with Posh Alexander. Has, he was walking around in a boot over the weekend. You know, they're one of their top guards. So guys get hurt, but Seton Hall's starting five is intact. The guys on the bench seem to know their role. Freshman Tay Davis shows a lot of promise. He, he's a spark plug type of guy with a big upside. 
uh, I think you know things are really moving in the right direction now. You know they they can't they have to win the games they should win. But if you look at Seton Hall's schedule, I just want to call this up real quick. So let's just say if Seton Hall can take care of business, and it will not be easy at St. John's, but if they go two and zero this week, you expect them to beat DePaul at home. They should win that game. Who knows? But they should win it. And then you have here's your closing schedule. Can they find three or four wins here, Steve? Creighton at home, at Villanova, Georgetown at home, at UConn. That's going to be tough, especially after beating them once. Xavier at home, Villanova at home, at Providence. Can they find three or four wins? You beat Georgetown at home. You get at least a split with Villanova. That's two. Can you get two more? Yeah, and that's going to be the key. And I think really that is where – we're going to see if Shaheen Holloway can pull off some of his big game magic down the stretch in the regular season uh, and, and, and knock off one or two of those teams that maybe you think, mm, yeah, Seton Hall's going to have a tough one in this one. And, and, and there's your four. So, you know, I, th- I think there is a path there. Um, and I think everything they've done and this week will be a, a, a big step in that direction. You're just, you're putting yourself in position to make something happen and make something out of this season. One more thought on the Pirates. The success they're having now and the fact that it seemed to be it seems to be working. I think that really bodes well in the offseason when it comes, you know, when the transfer portal season hits and free agency hits, can Seton Hall retain the four returning start, you know, starters who have eligibility left? Can they keep the Davis brothers? That's a pretty good nucleus right there. I I think they'll have a chance to really keep the core together and maybe, you know, add a piece or two in the transfer portal. Uh, and be really good next year. So it's important to achieve success, even if they don't make the NCAA tournament, for people to feel like this is going in the right direction so you don't have an exodus you know, come March and April. And I think from what I can gather, and again, nothing set in stone, but Seton Hall, is, is the, there's a confidence building that this nucleus is, is here to stay, which really bodes well for next year. So good things happening in South Orange. Uh, and, you know, Rutgers now uh, in a in – a, Good position coming off a tough loss, Rye. You can give us the details on Rutgers' week, but this is Rutgers is still in a good spot, and the Big Ten is going to deal you a couple blows. Yeah, absolutely, it is. They have that win at home against Penn State, and then they lose against Iowa. Iowa with the sweep of the Scarlet Knights this season. Rutgers Wednesday coming up. They have Minnesota at home, a team at or near the bottom of the Big Ten, and then they have an interesting matchup, Jerry. I know you want to talk about this one Saturday, Michigan State at Madison Square Garden. Uh, We've mentioned this on the show before. Uh, Michigan State has to love that they're going to the Garden and not the Rack to play this game. But uh, certainly a matchup here for Rutgers. Of course, take care of business against Minnesota. And then you have this matchup, uh, an opportunity to to get back at Michigan State, a team that beat them not too long ago uh, on a neutral floor, perhaps maybe not as neutral as it it could be uh, at Madison Square Garden on Saturday. Before I get into that minefield, uh, let's talk the, the past, let's talk about the past week. Rutgers did what they had to do. They went one and one. You know, the Scarlet Knights are in, have put themselves in good position where they just have to kind of move the chains. They don't need any big run. They don't need you know they're not where Se- Seton Hall has to win X amount of games. Like Rutgers just has to move the chains. A one and one week was fine. They hammered Penn State at home. You know, Iowa got them out in Iowa City. Iowa's a bad matchup for them. Iowa played great. Uh, I do think I was kind of wondering if we'd see Steve a little edge from Steve Peichel after the game because I know it really kills him when a team – I mean, 93 points. 
for Rutgers to allow 93 points is like a regular team allowing 120 points. And, you know, Pike would rather win a game 20 to 15 than win a game like 90 to 85, okay? And so that had to really bother him. But he was measured as he usually is. And, you know, I think it's just one of those games where things just went wrong. I was a good matchup. You're on the road. You, you turn a page. This week, you know, Rutgers, again, really just has to move the chains. Got to take care of business against Minnesota at home. It's the only real damaging, potentially damaging loss left on the schedule. Minnesota's terrible. Okay, they could re- they could losing them at home could really hurt your metrics. Assuming Rutgers bounces back and takes care of business, then you come to what is the really I think the toughest three game stretch on their schedule. You have Michigan State at Madison Square Garden, which we'll get to that in a minute. Then they're at at Illinois I mean, at Indiana and at Illinois, the two hottest teams in the Big Ten right now, aside from Purdue, which is kind of running away with from the field. But you are at two red-hot teams. So three games away from the confines of Jersey Mike's Arena, as we like to call it, the rack. And this is a real big test now. These are three good teams, three games not in their building. And can for Rutgers to get where ideally they can go, which is a protected seed in the NCAA tournament. That's a top-four seed. You get regional preference and geographical preference in your placement, which will be Albany. Could you imagine that arena in Albany filled with red on the first weekend of the NCAA tournament? If Rutgers wants to do that, they got to kind of – they got to make a little hay in these these next three games, in those three games we discussed. Now, can they go 3-0? I mean, that's a lot to ask, okay? But 2-1, you're in great shape. To make a chance to make a run at that protected seed, you know, one and two would be the minimum there. But it, it, of course, it starts against Minnesota. But really, the Michigan State game. And listen, the team doesn't look ahead. We can look ahead. That's what we do here. Okay, we're going to look ahead to this Michigan State game. Why is it in Madison Square Garden? Okay, because the Big Ten uh, under Jim Delaney wanted to assert a presence in Madison Square Garden. They held their their conference tournament there a few years back. Uh, you know, they had a chance to get the Barclays. They didn't want it. The Barclays is a JV arena. Madison Square Garden is the best arena in college basketball. So they have this Super Saturday thing where where they play games there every year and teams rotate. And Rutgers now has given up two home games. This is a Rutgers home game. They've given up two games in the rack. It was Wisconsin a few years back. Now this game against Michigan State, they're the home team at this really neutral site. Uh, they were the they were the road team against Michigan, so Michigan had to give up their home game a couple years ago. But now this is twice Rutgers had to give up a game at home in their building, which is a huge advantage, as we've talked about many times. Uh, the league does this because you know it's good for the league's brand. Rutgers agrees to it because this is part of the price of admission to the Big Ten, and also it's good for Rutgers' brand. It's going to be great in the Garden. I'm going to love it as a fan. The place will be crowded. It'll be rocking. It's an awesome building. It's not so great for Steve Peichel because. It takes a huge tool out of his toolbox. I mean, that's a big advantage. You think Tom Izzo, where would he rather play this game? He must have loved it when he heard the arrangement. So for Rutgers as a brand, is it good? Yeah, sure. You're playing in the garden. It's great. There'll be a lot of buzz. For Rutgers, the Rutgers team, you know, you're going to have to play Michigan State and you're going to lose that edge of playing in your in your little building that's absolute hothouse for opponents. So I think this presents a lot of challenges and it's going to be some reckoning uh, if Rutgers doesn't win this game, if they lose a close game that we think they would have won at home, you know, Steve Peichel, he's going to say the right things in public. Believe me, he wants this game in Piscataway, okay? But it'll be a great environment and I think really fascinating game on Saturday. Total toss-up. But again, this is the price of mission to the Big Ten. 
Rutgers has to give up a home game in their building, and that is a tough thing to swallow from a competitive advantage standpoint. Yeah, noon on a Saturday too, so that factors in as well. That if folks noon because you got you have the you have the game at night there. You know they have a game at night. Is it the Knicks or something? The Knicks or Rangers playing at night, so you got to play at noon, which you know probably also lessens. There'll be a good crowd there, but like they, they would be crazy if the game was at five or seven. Noon does tone it down a little bit, right? I still predict. Absolutely, and I think I, you're going to see ten thousand Rutgers fans there. Michigan State will have some people. You know, they'll have their people. There'll be a lot of Rutgers fans there, but it won't be the same as playing a game in Piscataway. Absolutely, we'll keep an eye on that. Of course, it starts Wednesday with Minnesota, and then Saturday at MSG against Michigan State. Uh, we're going to get to the point in the show now where we do want to talk about our mid majors in New Jersey. There's a lot to talk about there between the Princetons and Riders and FDUs and even Mammoths of the world. But before we get to that, as I mentioned, we had a special interview this week with the commissioner of the MAC, Richard Enser, joined the show, talked college hoops, talked college sports, a great conversation with Jerry and Steve. Let's take a listen to that. We have a special guest on this week's Jersey Jump Shot podcast, a man who's in his 35th and final year as commissioner, of the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference, making him the longest tenured head of a conference in NCAA Division I history. He took the reins at the MAC in 1988. How long ago was that? Not long after the three-point shot was introduced to college basketball. He's an Ocean County lifer who grew up in Brick, attended St. Joseph High School in Tom's River, and still lives in Lacey. Rich Enser, welcome to the Jersey Jump Shot Podcast. And let me start by asking a big-picture question as you approach a well-earned retirement, how are you feeling about the state of college sports? Well, it's certainly in a state of flux, I think, Jerry and Stephen. First of all, thanks for having me on on the podcast. But uh, I can't think of a time where we have more, more, more in various different types of issues in front of us. Uh, I guess they could be grouped around student-athlete welfare, but it's not just that for you know, it's the amount of funding coming into the football schools at the A5 level. You got a $1.1 billion annual contract with the Big Ten. You know, that kind of influx of funds at the top level is is pushing the A5 to require the types of support for athletes to justify that kind of revenue coming to them. But we don't get any of that type of level of revenue and yet are going to be asked to do many of the same things and hopefully won't bankrupt the enterprise in the process. Uh, and then secondly, you have the transfer portal and what that's done to team cohesion and the ability to build a, a team over multiple years. I saw Rick Pitino this weekend was saying he, he's got to change his whole recruiting. He can't just rely on incoming freshmen anymore. He's playing teams that have more senior and juniors on them. So, you know, you have that influx. I think that's a big part of it as well. And then the change in leadership at the NCAA and bringing in someone from the political realm, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, governor of uh, Massachusetts, Charlie, uh, he's coming in. And that's a different approach for us as well, because we've always been either run by ADs, former ADs, or commissioners, or uh, people from the presidential level in higher education. So a lot of different things occurring in the background that are going to really impact the game going forward. 
frankly, I'm glad I don't have to manage it. I think it's going to be very hard to manage. It's going to have a lot of financial pressures on, on mid-majors and particularly private school mid-majors that have to raise all these funds. So uh, I'll be interested to see how it works for the next 10 years or so. Rich, uh, now I'm curious along those lines, how do you see that playing out and how do you see that impacting long-term, you know, mid-major schools like, like Mac schools? Well, you know, there are a lot of elements to it, guys. One of them is they brought Charlie in as a new president because he has a political background. Theoretically, he can work with Congress to get the NCA a limited antitrust exemption and also get a uniform NIL law, uh, law in place, federal law, which would preempt all these different state laws that we currently are trying to navigate around. So um, the fact he's coming in to do that, but there's going to have to be some givebacks in order to get that. And I think the givebacks will be that some of the uh, pressures that have been put on by folks like Senator Booker here in, in New Jersey, where they're looking for a lot more direct support of student athletes, whether it be post, post-graduation medical care or uh, providing uh, unlimited time to get to your degree completion and a lot of other elements like that, that could get very expensive, particularly if they also then require the Alston case monies to be also to be awarded to the schools, which is you know ten thousand plus every year additional. If they have to do that for every student athlete, the, the funds are going to get a very. It's going to get very expensive quickly, and it may well impact the number of sports we sponsor at in the mid majors. We may only go down to the minimum number of sports, which is I think eight and seven. In the MAC, we sponsor twenty two some odd championships. So I could see a restructuring of how all that goes. So it's yet to be seen, but certainly the Board of Governors at the NCA has made it their mission to try and get these different exemptions from, the, from Congress. And then in return, they're going to give up a lot of, uh, or they're going to require a lot more from the membership in D1 yeah. to fund their student athletes. So <clears throat> I don't know how it's going to work out at the end. It's going to be an interesting process, but if they require that, they will restructure D1 athletics considerably, I think. Well, that sounds a little scary, but if there's any consolation, Rich, Congress gets almost nothing done. So, I mean, what you know, what are the odds they get anything done? All right, now I want to ask I, you. And they don't know if it's Monday or Tuesday. They can't agree if it's Monday or Tuesday, I always tell people, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, so we'll see. We'll see if they actually do anything and lift a finger. Uh, but, but your concerns, obviously, are well-grounded. So now, on that note, and a little different note, but change – that is of high concern to our listenership and, of course, dear, close to your heart, is the NCAA tournament going to remain at 68 teams for the foreseeable future? What is your gut feeling on this issue? I think we'll probably get somewhere north of that. Uh, I don't know how quickly. I would see you know, an expansion of that opening round by maybe as many as another uh, – maybe another – some people talk about 90 uh, in the field – I could see another 12 or so easily getting into that mix. Um, there are a lot of, as with anything in the NCA, there are a lot of different partners that have to be uh, included in that discussion. As you know, that's come out of the transformation committee. It was really aimed at a, requiring certain percentages of championships being offered. 
at sports other than basketball, basketball's included, but it's really had, it's really aimed at a lot of the sports that have had artificially low fields because right. it's not as important to the NCAA, but it immediately became an issue about the men's basketball championship. So right now we're doing 68 plus we have the NIT on the men's side, right? Which the NCAA runs. So you could easily fold that all into an NCAA championship, right? It would be the same number of postseason opportunities that are currently available to the membership. So I could see that happening. And the women are about to start a process of adding an alternate tournament for them as well. We, we can't call it the NIT because there is a women's NIT. And we don't right. want to get into an antitrust lawsuit, but it'd be some alternate tournament. So it's not inconceivable that in the next few years, instead of having an NIT, we just expand the men's field and then the women do the same on their field. And we don't, we get out of the business of these alternate tournaments. But Rich, I want to ask you about the, on, on that note, like St. Peter's, for example, you know, that was, and you know, you're all a modern too, and a Mac school that, that really sort of captured the whole sport imagination, the entire sports world last March. You know, you expand the NCAA tournament. That's another round. That's another hoop that a St. Peter's has to jump through to get to where they got to it, like a Loyola a few years before that. I mean, that's not – people want to see these upsets. Wasn't it Wasn't it thrilling to you and the oh, feedback you got about what St. Peter's did? Why make that I'm harder? Not, I'm not saying I, I support that. I'm just explaining right. how it could be done. Now, I think you have to have a place for the Cinderella's because that drives interest. And I think the networks will tell you the same thing. They don't want to dilute those Cinderella stories because that drives a lot of viewership in the early rounds of the tournament. And then you get down to the final four and, you know, you've got the majors typically in there and they're trying to drive their own ratings. But uh, yeah, I think as they look at this, they've got to maintain that role. And I, I am not quite sure how you get to it. Uh, it might be some way of different of seating differently than they do now so that, no AQ could be lower than a certain seed line, like a fifth, uh, St. Peter's was 15, right? So right. they could be lower than a 15 or whatever seed line currently exists. And that any additional at-larges that come in would fill in the uh, the new seed lines. I mean, there are different ways of doing that. I, I think the mid-majors would like to have a conversation. If they're going to expand the championship that large, that you have to be 500 in your own conference, you know? If you can't be 500 or better in your own conference, then why are you even talking about postseason? We all, you know, you get the right. benefit of being in a major conference. Do you really belong in a, a postseason tournament if you're 10 and 12 or whatever? So, uh, you know, there are a lot. So there are different ways to tweak in that as well. Uh, but I think ultimately in the next decade, at least, you'll probably see something. The, they have to negotiate this with CBS and Turner. I don't think CBS and Turner are really looking to elongate the tournament because it backs up against the Masters, which is also a CBS property. So they don't really want to go further into April. So what would that do to regular season play then if we had to go, you know, end it earlier than we currently do in the first week of March? So a lot of issues would have to be resolved, but I wouldn't be surprised to see in a decade a much larger bracket than we currently have. Rich, do you, do you see a day where maybe all 350 Division One teams are not under the same big umbrella and, you know, maybe there's more a decentralized authority than the NCAA, maybe the, the league's taking more decision-making roles in this stuff? 
Well, to some extent, we have that now, right? Uh, you know, the A5 is a superpower of their own weighted. They, they control all the major boards, the governors, the D1 uh, board of directors. They control the NCA council with their weighted voting. So we've been living under a very bifurcated system for a while now. Um, so I don't know that that isn't already occurring and necessarily needs to be even more formalized. Um, but yeah, I think all things are on the table as you move forward. There's certainly a, a such a huge revenue flow going to the CFP participants, if nothing else, uh, and the TV broadcast packages that they can drive. That just really makes it so different. But I think it's to their benefit to have us in the mix. You know, we do provide interest in these tournaments. We, our numbers often justify the larger baseball and softball championships that they dominate. They, you know, the way the NCAA works, if you don't have 300 plus schools uh, participating in a given sport, you don't have the bracket sizes that they have in some of those other sports that they, they dominate by and large. So uh, it's a uneasy marriage of convenience for many of us. Uh, we're happy to be part of it because of the branding it gives our schools and the revenue flows that we do get from the NCAA basketball revenue. Uh, that's important to our operations and to our school's operations because they get different funds from, from those monies. Uh, and the branding is really important for us. People generally come into D1. Schools come into D1 to be branded as D1 programs, not necessarily because they're going to be that successful in their athletic program. It's the D1 brand that drives the interest level. Interesting. Rich, you've, you've been really creative about scheduling opportunities, right? Finding ways for your your teams to play out of conference games as these large conferences grow and are scheduling among themselves more. What, what's your biggest advice to mid-major ADs and coaches about scheduling and what's what's the next step? What do you foresee in the future about what's the future of non-conference scheduling for Mac Mac level schools? Well, I'm probably going to get into that business side as I leave the Mac. I'm not retiring, retiring. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm, I couldn't go from 90 to 10 miles an hour. I just, yeah, there you go. You know, I'm going to land up, I'll land up in a hospital somewhere. But um, uh, scheduling's interesting now. What's happened on the mid-major levels, and it's a bad development, I, in my view, is our schools, including the Mac, rely on those guarantee games to fund salary levels for the coaches. And and, and many and in our cases, usually it's salaries. In other schools, even lower down the food chain, it actually funds the programs. That existed forever in football, and now it's become really a bigger and bigger part of the revenue flows for basketball. That's unfortunate because you're playing at their places generally. And as we all know, you know, 80% of the time, the home team wins a game, particularly in the non-conference sphere. You know, every once in a while, you see somebody get upset and they paid somebody 100000 to come play them and they get beaten. But that's a rarity, let's face it. Um, so what the, I've always tried to do is find neutral side opportunities, and I still believe that's the way to do it. But I have a hard time convincing even my own schools to do it anymore because they want the guarantee monies. And then when they take the guarantee money, the three or four other games they have left, they want to get bops of their own. They don't want to be in the Orlando Invitational, you know, playing against seven pretty good programs. They want to be in an event where they can pick up a check and then play somebody they know they can beat either home or away series that they set up. So it's become bigger and bigger a hurdle to, you know, to convince these schools to do it. 
I don't have somebody for the Orlando Classic right now in my own league, and we get a guaranteed spot. So I've got about another week or two to get this figured out, and I've talked to many of them. Uh, and it's always about, well, we're not going to be that good next year, or I've got to take these guarantee games. And then I, didn't, didn't Sienna just pick up a win against Seton Hall in that this year? Oh, yeah, and, and I own a beat uh, Alabama the year before who was a top-10-ranked team. I get it, but you cannot convince these people. Wow. So, I mean, I coaches like Patino will do it. I'm sure I can get Carmen to do it, but you can only be in the same event at once every four years. Uh, John Dunn has done it, and probably and he's scheduled to do it Marist in 24, but I need somebody for 23 right now. So I'm working on it, but it's not easy. So we have said other things. We did the Mac A Sun Challenge in Ireland. We also did it at Disney the year before that. I'm trying to get the America East to do one for me uh, with us, I should, should say, with the Mac for next year at, at Disney. But these are not easy things to pull off anymore with the mid-majors if there's not a check attached to the game. You know, Rich, having done this over the part of five different decades, I, I am sure there's going to be part of you that as you retire is going to miss this. I, I mean, are there – are there things over the years, people, events, moments that are going to really just stick out to you or do at this point over your time? Well, frankly, it's the relationships you build up over time that are most valuable to me personally. The relationships I've had with the other mid-major, even major conference uh, conference commissioners have been valuable. Uh, I'm having dinner tonight with Linda Bruno and Chris Monash, two former commissioners in the city, because I haven't seen them in a while. So I try to keep those those ties going. The staff I have brought in over the years and trained and uh, seen them elevate themselves through the business, uh, I find that extremely rewarding. Uh, you know, I have Rochelle up in St. Peter's. She started off as an intern in the Mac office. Uh, half of my staff were interns in the Mac office. I've got two SWAs right now that were former Mac uh, interns. So I've got a lot of that out there. And, you know, over over 35 years, there's 100 plus people probably I could look at that I've helped put into the business. And I really enjoy when I see them be successful because I know I had something to do with getting them started. And then watching my own family grow up within the Mac, you know, starting as ball boys and girls. And now they're all having kids and they're all starting to have kids of their own. So that's, you know, part of it I've always enjoyed. And the relationships I've had with presidents over the years, uh, you know, there was a time in the Mac when some of the presidents were there 25, 30 years themselves. And so you would develop strong relationships with them. The pandemic and the turnover in presidents really has put me in a position now where I really don't have that relationship quite as much, but I'm sure the next commissioner will develop them. Uh, but that's important. And as far as the sporting parts of it, yeah, um, I always like hosting the NCAA events. We host a lot of them. Uh, we've hosted the Frozen Four. We've hosted wrestling, rowing, tr- cross country, and, of course, all these basketball first and second rounds and regionals. We have the men again this year in Albany, and we had them last year in Buffalo. And next year we have the women's Super 8 in, in uh, Albany. So being able to work at a high level on a very public stage is something I personally find rewarding uh, because, it, you know, I have always felt I have the toolkit to do anything I want and college athletics i chose to work in the mid-major world because i enjoyed that level of competition and the didn't want to get into the rat race of the next level uh so um 
Yeah, I've always enjoyed running the NCA events because of that. And then even the Mac events, you know, even though, you know, we do so many of them, the ones at Disney, the feedback we get from the student athletes saying what a special big time event that was when we did, we just, we've gone through an RFP process right now for the next three years of the Mac basketball tournaments. And we hope to have that concluded in the next couple of weeks. But when you get the feedback from the athletes, you know, people have different opinions of whether that tournament should be all 22 teams, whether it should be at one site, whether it should be at a neutral site, all those types of elements. But when you see the feedback from the athletes saying, this was such a great big time event, you know, for them, it's their final four. Most of them will not get to the NCAAs. None of them will likely ever get to a final four. But for them, the MAC tournament is their final four, and we always try to make it a special event for them. So I get a lot of reward from that. All right, last question, Richard. Thank you for your time. Uh, when you got started with the MAC, very few games, no, no MAC games hardly were on television. Very few games at all would be televised in college basketball. And now pretty much any fan or alum of any team can find a way to stream their team's games in college basketball. What is the next frontier with that is there something coming down the coming down the pike as far as the way sports fans will experience games in the future well there's no question it's getting harder and harder to get them to come into the arenas no matter what level you're at uh because of both the cost and the convenience of the of the of all the broadcasts that we do make available to them um i personally think the in-person in-venue experience is is hard to match but we certainly have made it very easy for general fans to watch broadcast. The change for us was I came in, we had no package. We did a couple of, we, we stringed together a couple of years of, of broadcasts on different channels, alternate channels, if you will, over the air channels. And then I had the opportunity to work with ESPN and we've been a partner with them for over 30 years now. And we, we stepped up every time they asked us to do something. We were always the first one. We were the first one to sign a contract for ESPNU when everybody said nobody will want a 24-7 college, a college broadcast network. We signed up with ESPN2. We signed up with ESPN360, which is now what we call ESPN3 and ESPN+. And in the process, I convinced the presidents to build production facilities at every school. Well over a half million dollar investment if you have the space and if you have to build the space even more so last year we we pushed out 650 plus broadcasts in all our sports this year we're going to go over 700 in my wildest dreams when i got hired when i have ever thought we'd be producing 700 games a year for espn and our fans would be able to access that from anywhere so that's been the major change in broadcasting and you got to pick good partners. And I always said the brand counts. The ESPN's the best brand in sports broadcasting, as far as I'm concerned. Disney, when they bought the company, they're, they're a family-oriented company. And that's why we do a lot of things down to Disney in our championship space. But working with them is, is really, a, they're the best professionals. And we have really appreciated that relationship. Well, 35 years, Rich. Congratulations in advance of your semi-retirement, not a full retirement. We, we will make a note of that when we need you for insight on scheduling matters in the future. Thank you for joining the Jersey Jump Shot podcast. We hope to see you at the shore sometime soon. Oh, yeah, no, guys. I always like being with the homeboys. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. Take care. Take care. 
And again, thanks to Rich Enser for joining the show. Jerry, uh, lots of great stuff there in that interview. I want to just emphasize to people listening to this that like Rich Enser isn't just throwing stuff, random stuff out there off the top of his head. He's an insider. So he knows exactly what's going on on the inside that most people don't have access to. So everything he says there is pretty close to law, okay? And so to get his his views and his forecasts is really fascinating to me. And, you know, you are, you are worried that college sports is at a precarious moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and in regards to his conference, the conference he oversees, the MAC, Steve, uh, some big results this week with number one, Ryder, wins at Marist and Fairfield. They've won five in a row. They're second in the MAC. St. Peter's also with a nice win at Mount St. Mary's. Coming up this week, Riders, they play St. Peter's on Friday and at Manhattan on Sunday. And St. Peter's, the only game they have this week is Friday with Ryder. Uh, as you look at the results in the week ahead, Ryder keeps winning. Yeah, Ryder keeps winning, as you said, five straight. Uh, you know, listen, they, they've proven they can beat Iona. I think the MAC is wide open this year. I think Siena has established themselves as the best team in the league right now, but it, it really is a wide open league. You know, but I think to me, the nicest moment of the mid major last week was Monmouth finally getting a win. You know, when you're one in 20, I mean, the pressure is really building on everyone within that program. You know, it, it, it so for them, and, and it had kind of been growing. Listen, 10 days ago, they had a lead against number 18, uh, Charlotte, uh, in going into Charleston, going into the second half. You know, that, that was a nice, a nice moment. Then they went on the road and they're at UNC Wilmington and they had a shot at the end, a final shot in the final seconds in that game. And, you know, that's a 100 net team. You know, they're a real team. So that was another nice result. And then on the back end of that North Carolina road trip, they play really well and they win. They beat North North Carolina A&T, which is a real team, right? I mean, you know, they're top half of the CAA and Mammoth dominated that game. So really, really nice to see, uh, you know, they had been building to this. And I think at the beginning of the year, you know, the, the, the talk was we knew this was going to be a, a young team would probably struggle. I don't think anyone realized it would be this bad. But everyone was saying, look, let's see what, how they're doing in the second half of the CAA season. And that's where we are now. And you've seen some signs of life. So it will be interesting to uh, to kind of see how they navigate these next six weeks and if you can really see that growth. You know, and I think one thing I, I will say about that, there is a really nice story brewing, and that is Jakari Spence. And he's a kid from Tom's River North, uh, scored over 1,500 points at Tom's River North, went to Robert Morris as a walk-on, came back to Monmouth, has been a walk-on there the last uh, two seasons. And he's their starting point guard right now. He's He's been it for the last five games, and the team is playing better with him there. And, you know, against, uh, against A&T, 14 points, seven assists, five rebounds. Um, so uh, Monmouth, I think it was a really nice story last week. Good for them, and they are getting better. And the optics do matter, Steve. You don't want to finish one in twenty-nine, right? If Monmouth can win five or six games, a lot better than one in twenty-nine and two in twenty-eight. Uh, you mentioned Ryder real quick; they've won five straight. Uh, Mervin James, let's give the forward a shout out. He's averaging thirteen and seven, playing really well, helping out Dwight Murray Jr. Sienna nine and two in the lead in the MAC. Ryder's eight and three. Iona seven and three. Uh, Rick Pitino no showing at his press conference. After a loss to uh, to Sienna, come on, Rick, you're better than that, man. That's bad. That's, bad. That's, That's a terrible job. That's Bush League. Come on, man. Oh boy. 
So will he wind up at Georgetown next year? Where will it be? You know, he's going somewhere, okay? But still, come on, show up to your press conference after the biggest game of the year in the conference. Uh, quickly on St. Peter's, shout out to uh, Jalen Murray and Isaiah Dasher. The two holdovers from last year's Elite Eight team are playing well. St. Peter's is mostly rebuilding. They're 4-8 and eight after winning at, against Mount St. Mary's, and uh, Jalen Murray had a huge game then. So good for those guys for sticking around and uh, helping that team transition. Uh, How about FDU? FDU, FDU. They they made us look good. Yes. <laughs> Tobin Anderson on last week, and his team rolls to two big wins. First they beat St. Francis of Pennsylvania and Merrimack, two of the better teams in the Northeast Conference. The Knights are in first place in the league at 7-2. and two. Grant Singleton, one of the guards who came over from Division Two, Stack, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, with Tobin Anderson, has a, had a huge week. And FDU moves closer to the goal of hosting uh, conference tournaments games in Rothman. So good for them, and they made us look smart. Uh, go ahead, Rye. What else you got for us? We got a couple more schools to mention. Yeah, quickly, Princeton, they lose a wild 765. As we mentioned last week, Yale, really one of their biggest competitors in the Ivy League. But Princeton, with an opportunity to bounce back, they have the New York schools coming in to Jadwin this weekend. Cornell on Friday, Columbia on Saturday for the Tigers. Well, Cornell's in first place, so that is a huge game. But you know, you have seen how competitive the Ivy League is right now. I mean, Princeton's very good, but you know they've lost some some tough games uh, lately. It, it's going to be a tough league to win, but you know Princeton is still in good shape. You know, in the tournament. Yeah, Yale just went nuts from three. It happens. You know, that's college basketball. But I want to mention we mentioned a guy last week. I said, "Who is this, Caden Pierce?" He was the Ivy League uh, Player of the Week, Freshman of the Week, and I, his brother. How about this? His brother played a year at North Carolina. I guess a post grad year for Roy Williams at North Carolina. His brother Justin. His other brother Alec Pierce plays wide receiver for the Indianapolis Colts. So there you go, Caden Pierce. Now we know who he is. Princeton's got dudes. It's really a great time in New Jersey college hoops. I Don't mean, forget NJIT. Got a NJIT. NJIT. Yeah. Let's they give a little shout UNBC. out to them. Let's give a little. They have New Hampshire Wednesday and, and UMass Lowell on Saturday, but a nice win for them uh, against UMBC this past week for NJIT. Yeah, Makai Gray hit the game-winning shot with three seconds left. He scored 18 points, and NJIT is three and four in America East, so they're in the mix there. So good for them. Good things. Good times for New Jersey college basketball. I mean, you have Rutgers, Seton Hall, Princeton, Ryder, FDU. And then NJIT, St. Peter's, they're all in the mix as well. So it really is an exciting time. Monmouth gets on the board with another win as well this year, snapping that streak. Good week for NJ College Hoops and should be a fun week coming up uh, this coming week. We'll, of course, be back next week to recap all of the games. We'll take a look ahead. We keep looking ahead on the schedules. The coaches can't, but we'll look ahead on the schedules and try to predict what's coming up next. Thanks so much to Rich Enser for joining the show, Commissioner from the MAC. Great conversation with him. And thank you so much for listening. Of course, visit NorthJersey.com, APP.com, MyCentralJersey.com to read everything that Jerry, Steve, and Chris are writing about college hoops. And be sure to join us again next week on Jersey Jump Shot. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the games this week, and we'll talk to you next time. Jersey Jump Shot is a production of the Asbury Park Press and USA Today Network. Subscribe at app.com.